0: I would do lots of cool stuff with a sheep that walked on two <laughs> legs.
1: Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books you are reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Nudden. As
0: promised, we have a conversation with Nick Corpon. Uh, in case you didn't listen to the last episode, I strongly urge that you do so. We reviewed his most recent book, Queen of the Struggle. But in case you didn't hear that, I'm going to give you his very quick and succinct bio. Nick Corpon is the author of several books, including The Soul Standard and Stay God's Sweet Angel. He lives in Baltimore with his wife and two children. Nick, welcome to the booked thanks for having me, guys. It's been a long time almost two years by our uh, our estimation, yeah, 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 it's been a while
1: so before we started recording before we actually got got on the line with you, there was a little bit we we're talking about your author bio and um we've noticed that it is shorter than it used to be. And we both kind of assumed it was like somehow our doing, like we always complain about author bios. So was there any influence from us in the changing of your author bio? Actually, yes, there was. (laughs) (laughs) Cause I used to put,
2: I think I used to put something like has bloodied the screens and blackened the eyes of Mm -hmm. whatever it was. And, um, I guess over, like over time, it was partially like, it just, it was just, it kind of came off as twee or something. Um, and after hearing you guys complain about author bias so many times, I realized that it really doesn't matter where my short stories are being published.
1: <laughs> wow. So
2: I just kept it short and sweet.
1: All right. I didn't, I didn't expect you to say yes, but, um, here's the thing. And this is the funny thing, um, for, for listeners who don't know, which, You know, it's a possibility. I guess we published a book five years ago, almost like four and a half, between four and a half and five years ago, that you're in. And um, in in between the time that we made the book and now, we have had a lot of the authors that we included in our book back onto our podcast. And every time, or or we reviewed something of theirs, every time with the (laughs) with the exception, I think, of Fred Venturini. Nobody has included the, our anthology in their <laughs> their author bio. And I've so, actually
2: gone back and put that into a bio or two. And like, I mean, there are so many different bios floating around the Internet that it depends sure. on you know, <laughs> where you. Oh, wait, 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 wait. OK, so you were just talking before we started recording. You're talking about my old author photo. Yeah. So yeah. I looked it up and I'm looking at the Amazon one. That th- my Amazon bio. Nick Corpon is the author of the re- Rebellion's last Trader, Queen of the Struggle and The Soul Standard, among others. His stories have blighted the pages and the screens of Thuglit, Needle, Out of the Gutter, Crime Factory, Shotgun Honey, The Booked Period, Anthology, oh. and a bunch dot dot dot.
1: Nice. Nice. So it does that work.
0: Is that actually a different one than the one that gets included? Like, does each book get its own bio then? I have no idea. I don't really understand how the hmm. internet works.
1: Yeah. You and if me you both, do. buddy. You yeah. and me both. Rob knows that about me. But that's, so the, the, it doesn't actually hurt our feelings. I don't think, well, it doesn't hurt my feelings. I don't know about Lydia's, but it gives us the opportunity to complain about it every time. And I just fucking love that. It's like one of the best things is like, oh, here we are getting slighted again by one of our authors.
2: It's undercover promotion for the book
0: anthology. It, yeah,
1: exactly. It gives us an yep. a, a reason to mention it.
0: You know, Rob says that, but if he ever sees my bio that I submit to various places around the internet, mine doesn't include it either, so it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't even Wow. So.
1: <laughs> well, we all know your level of dedication. You don't even have a tattoo with our podcast name on you. That
0: is correct, but Rob, I will tell you, I have a friend that has a book podcast tattoo.
1: <laughs> Wait a minute, I can, know what you're doing there. Can, can you say the same thing? <laughs> uh <laughs> shit you got me um that was some next level owning actually (laughs) i i don't know how that i don't know how you won that one though because i'm the one that's got the tattoo
0: it doesn't matter we're here to talk about nick
1: nick what's new (laughs) with you man
2: just been busy man uh all good stuff i've been writing a bunch of um promo essays for queen of the struggle and uh getting ready that came out today in the uk And it'll be out on, oh God, Tuesday. I think next week. I should know because it comes comes out on the same day.
0: uh, That is my daughter's birthday. This the sixth.
2: Yeah, it's March sixth.
1: Yeah, I I think that's.
0: Yep. In all likelihood, by the time you're hearing this, I do believe that's today, maybe yesterday, <laughs> depending on when you're listening, so you will be able to get that uh when you're hearing this uh this uh see, I don't want to say interview anyway because they're not interviews. we're not going to interview you this conversation, a night with Nick Corpon. <laughs> we really have to come up with a name for these
1: rounds well I don't yeah but but that see the the trick with that is that puts him you're equal to us now, so you have as much power in this conversation as we do, which is kind of scary.
0: You don't want to give that up. Yeah. <laughs> Rob still has editing power. Oh, over books. that's true. That's, <laughs> true. Yeah. that's what he lords over my head all the time, at least. Um, so a question, um, and I'm sure we're going to kind of circle back to queen of the struggle uh, throughout, but um, <clears throat> prognosis on the third book, whatever, are, what are we doing here?
2: Um, so it was the original idea was, well, the original idea was just a uh, rebellions. Last Trade. It was just a standalone book. And then it became, um, then it became a trilogy. Um, and then I accidentally pitched a fourth book to um, Phil Jordan, my editor, who you guys know. Um, so we, we uh, Angry Robot has a has the synopses for the third and fourth book, and we're just waiting to hear and, you know, I guess like see how these books do and whatnot. Um, so I have. I have a, a good idea of where the third book would go and very broad strokes of the possible fourth book, which I think would be the last one.
1: I think, very uh, cool. I think Livius and I are, are, have the same question is how do you accidentally pitch a book? Well,
2: <laughs> we, we were talking about something in, so it's always, it's always been a trilogy in my head because I like the, just the beginning, middle and the end of things. Um, I always, I think I always think about things in uh, like three X structures, even if it doesn't really follow that, but it's a good uh, guide for me or whatever to write. Um, And there's just something nice about, you know, the trilogy format. And after I got the copy edits from Phil um, or the the editorial edits, whatever they are, um, we were talking about something and I was like, yeah, you know, I'd really like to explore how or I think it would be really interesting to see how this event impacts everything else and then what the fallout of this one is and how it interacts with this other thing and I don't know maybe that would be an interesting thing to explore in another book just like as a one-off thing (laughs) and then when I went back and looked at it later I was like oh shit I think I just came up with a fourth book that 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 makes sense yeah so I mean it, it could be interesting We'll we'll see Hopefully enough people buy these two that um, they will uh, pick up the next two.
0: So, what kind of other places are you uh, are you doing promoting? What kind of other stuff goes into this? This is one of those aspects we don't really talk to to people about very often. Like we, we have a bunch of questions about the book, and then we try to come up with something outside the book another interest, But really, what is what is a, a you know what's your current kind of promoting schedule look like? I know you're doing a bunch of stuff. Um, yeah, last week that I saw, and I know you got some stuff um, coming up this coming week too.
2: Yeah, it's it's been really interesting because now with with Angry Robot it's still you know it's still a fairly small press or mid-sized press but they they have a lot of they have a good system set up and I think they have all the agility of a small press with the backing of big presses because they're distributed through um Penguin Random House and um I forget what the UK distributor is but um so we actually have a lot of uh, support, you know, instead of doing it all on my own, like I've done with, uh, you know, a lot of the micropresses, whatever before. So with that, it's been, I think it's been interesting because with uh, Rebellions as Trader, I was trying to, in the, you know, like a lot of the interviews and the essays and stuff that I was doing, I was talking a lot about the, the memory thief aspect, obviously, but I was focusing a lot more on the, um, like the politics side, because there are a lot of I don't think they're very explicit, but there's a lot of, um, like leftist ideas in, um, in these two books. And I was talking about them a lot because it's something that I'm interested in. And then I also thought it was kind of like a differentiating type of thing, um, to set it aside from, you know, like regular run of the mill sci-fi and also because it was prescient at that point, um, Mm -hmm. um, within the U S and our political system and all that kind of stuff. But I think that a lot of it also turned people off because they were, they were so inundated with everything that was going on with the Trump administration and all that, um, in their daily lives. And they don't really want to read about it necessarily. Um, so I've, I've actually, I've made a concerted effort to try to back off a lot of that stuff, um, this round and focus more on, um, you know, like the, the interpersonal relationships between the characters and, uh, talking about world building and like the sci-fi aspects and stuff like that. So it's it's been an interesting uh, transition, I guess, in looking at it from more of a, like a marketing point of view, I guess, which sounds kind of crass because you don't really want to think about, you know, your, your book or your art or whatever is a commodity or marketing it. But at the same time, like if no
0: one buys it, then no one else is going to ask you to write a book for them. Yeah, is it a great is it a great painting if no one ever gets to see it, right? That's the kind of yeah. the, the the gist of it. Yeah, and that's it's got to be tough cuz I mean, you know, we're on 7 years. We suck at marketing, but we, we we don't do it. Like we just we just refuse to do it. If nobody listens, like we're okay with that. Um for the most part. It's pretty much true, um, yeah. But yeah, and that's because I I think like, oh, I have all these great ideas and Rob has all these great ideas for episodes and stuff. And I think like if we put a quarter of that energy into trying to get it out there, maybe we'd increase our audience. But the second we start talking about that, I'm I'm like I'm like turned off. I like shut down. I go that's not what I want to do because that's not the fun part. So it's a necessary evil. Um uh, for, for, I mean, for an author, it's, it's an absolutely necessary evil. Cause other yeah. than that you're writing, you know, they're journal entries. Right. So it's uh, you got to yeah. get out there and promote yourself
2: and I work. My, my day job is in advertising. I'm a copywriter and ad agency. So I should be like <laughs> adept at these kinds of things, but I'm just, <laughs> I'm so terrible at it. Cause it's like, I don't know. It's, I just feel weird. You know, even how long have I been writing? I think my first book, ever came out like eight years ago or something, but still eight years in, I feel really, really weird talking about myself. I don't know if it's like misplaced
0: Catholic guilt from my grandma or something like that, but it's just weird. Well, it's a little tough because I mean, you get paid to promote other people's things. Yeah, yeah. Because that's your job, you know, but I I can see we're going out and, and I think it's the same thing for us too. I probably do a better job selling somebody else's podcast than I would my own.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, that's what we're doing. We're selling other people's stuff.
0: Yeah, by promoting but I think
1: that's also. Books. Yeah,
2: I think people people have made a good case for that on social media, at least within you know we tend to run within author circles. But one of the best ways to kind of get your name out, I guess, is to talk about other people's books a lot, which is, you know, everyone always likes to hear about other people's books, and then if your name comes along with it, then that's awesome.
1: Well. Here's what I'll say, and and you probably know better than me how successful that is. I prefer to see people, uh, let's say authors, who talk about other authors' stuff, you know, as opposed to only ever talking about their own stuff. So, like, an example would be Stephen Graham Jones, which I mean, I mean, he's probably the example event. Like, for every time on anything good, I'm sure he's going to be the, one of the examples. <laughs> but like that dude, you can tell he is so enthusiastic about other people's work and he just wants people to know how cool it is so it's like it's coming from a genuine place but like i want him to succeed more because i see how much energy he puts into bringing up other people so yeah yeah I, that yeah. kind of energy i think repays itself whereas like it's, you know if you're just always talking about yourself eventually people are gonna get tired of you yeah. And I think like
2: people can tell, even on, you know, social media, people can tell the difference between authentic interest and like, Hey, uh, this new thriller that everyone is pitching as the new gone girl is really good. You should read it or something, you know, yeah. which is kind of uh, like artifice or something.
0: Right. Look, with Stephen Graham Jones, that guy gets so excited about things that it's, it's kind of contain- He gets little kid excited, and yeah. it's hard not to be interested in something that someone like him is that giddy about, if that makes sense. But you're right. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely that I'm going to promote these people because uh, potentially they could do something for me. Yeah. Um, or or I can align myself next to these people by talking about them versus just being really excited about about something that's coming out. I mean I don't really like sweet stuff and Steven gets me stoked for sixlet, sixlets. Right. Sixlets yeah. are the goddamn best. <laughs> I've never had a sixlet. Oh my god, man. Neither have I no, be singular.
1: Yeah. If I if I knew I was gonna see Steven, I'd probably make sure I had some handy just uh to... It's because he's got that. Okay, so
0: they're kind of like M and Ms. If M and Ms were smaller and had more candy coating on the outside, that's probably the closest way I could explain that to you
1: guys. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. That's interesting. Um, and then our conversation's done. I think that's the end of the the conversation.
2: Um, Well, we touched on Stephen and Sixlet, so I think that's about it.
1: Yeah, that'll close it out. (laughs) So about so. If we could talk a little bit about um, some of the, the Queen of the Struggle. Sure. Like Livius was saying, uh, I think before we got on, one of the things that was a big theme in our review, which you you didn't get an opportunity to listen to because we haven't posted it yet by the time <coughs> we recorded this, um, is, and, and you were talking about kind of moving away from politics a little bit, mm-hmm. um, like kind of like challenging morality was, was um, something that, I think happened pretty big in in the first book, but kind of took to me center stage in Queen of the Struggle. Um, within the main characters, but also like you know, um, kind of evenly throughout, and then also in a way, I feel like the story challenged the reader to kind of put themselves in the shoes of whoever was having a moral quandary sometimes. So you'd have to be like, well, I don't know how I would act in this situation. So how much of um, an emphasis was there on this whole like kind of moral conundrum thing that, that seemed to be pretty pervasive in the, in the book?
2: Well, when you said that before, I thought it was interesting because I never, I didn't think about that explicitly, but looking at it, um, In hindsight, I can see how that comes across. I think what I was, a lot of what I was looking at was like with the first book. So there are two different things. One, with the first book, there's a lot of like uh, stage setting, I guess. Um, I mean, it's got its own narrative momentum through it, but the uh, Queen of the Struggle is a lot faster, I think. Um, And a lot of that is intentional. But I think it's always fun to watch people tear down like these, uh, totalitarian authoritarian regimes. Um, and you know, everyone cheers when the when the first Death Star gets blown up. But I think what's really interesting and what a lot of places don't, or a lot of stories don't touch on is what happens after that. Like there's some, there's some line in, um, Queen of the Struggle, I think, or maybe it's in the first book. I can't remember what it is, but something about like, you don't know who you are. You only know where you end by what's pushing up against you um and they're talking about henrik because he he's been defined for so long as a rebel and then what happens when he has nothing to rebel against um and part of it is based on you know my interest in leftist uprisings and, you know like south america and spain and different places like that but once you once you've taken down this regime you know like the i think cuba is a great example of it like they took down this dictator but then, what do you do once that's done? You know, like it's a lot harder to build things up than it is to tear something down. And it was kind of, it was exploring that idea, coupled with um, what how do I say it? Like an exploration of things that have a good outcome and are generally good for people, but they have questionable means or like, uh, you know, is the outcome worth the cost? I guess, right. which is something that especially Henrik, well, I, I guess, uh, a Marion deals with a lot. And then Henrik deals with that. Plus like, you know, he's been built up as a rebel this whole time. And when he sees his kid spoiler alert, if you didn't read the first book, um, but when he sees his kid, you know, um, idolizing him for this but he's kind of he's not sure that he wants to do it anymore you know like how does he reconcile the person that he's supposed to be with the person that he is or the
0: person he's turning into or whatever you know you brought up an interesting point um i I, i'm i'm of romanian descent in case anybody's listening for the first time because Rob mentions it frequently enough (laughs) um i I mean there are still people in romania to this day who argue that communist romania under ceausescu now that that ended in the early 90s was more stable and better by and large for people because they still have not rebuilt their country in a way um where where a lot of people even have enough so the, the 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 saying i guess um is something like well under ceausescu Everybody had just enough, but Mm -hmm. now you have like the haves and the like, seriously have nots So, you know, nobody was happy back then, but everybody got by and now you have a culture where a lot of people aren't even getting by and it's a, a, you know, air quotes, democratic society. Um, But there are people who are suffering much worse than they would have or did, you know, 25 years ago or whatever it is, 28 years, however long it's been. Um, under you know what was a ter- you know terrible conditions allegedly it's just that for some people it's even worse now yeah and how you balance out you know
2: like the the human cost or like the uh, the emotional cost of being you know quote unquote free or whatever um, yeah. versus having you know enough food even if it's shitty food you know what 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 are the what are the exchanges you have to make? Or like, what are the payoffs? What do you have to deal with? Uh, and what's worth it and what's not. And, you know, there's a, the problem is that there's no, there's no one answer. If you have a country of 10 million people,
1: Yeah,
2: you know, that's yeah. why you see so many little small, like, I think in Spain, there are still, um, autonomous, um, and, uh, communist, uh, communes or whatever, like little, Pueblos or villages or whatever, if you know like two thousand people that can actually exist in a completely you know communist state because there are only two thousand people, but once you blow that up to like i mean even like a city size of five hundred thousand or something like that, it's a lot harder to make those kinds of uh communal decisions,
1: yeah, yeah, and another thing that um and I think you kind of touched on this a little bit, but I want to expand a little is um in In this book in the second book, so in in you know the rebellion's last trader they everything they did was for this cause, and now the cause isn't necessarily like when you kind of remove the cause from the equation um then they're they're kind of faced with like why am I you know is it right that I'm making the decision I've done these things, but like you know I can't just say it's for the cause anymore. So is it, you know, and then they're, they're kind of stuck with like, wait, am I, should I be doing these things and how should I feel about them? So, yeah, it was all, it was all done. It, it made me think a lot more about like, well, what does this decision mean? And like, what would I have done in that situation? Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I, you, well, to use Cuba again, you see that stuff
2: still, you still see like Che photos all over the place and yeah. also uh, La Revolución Siempre and like, dude, the revolution ended. Yeah. 70 years ago you know you can't yep. you can't keep using that rally cry right 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 no one from the original party is still alive and you know what i mean Che was fine and whatever but he was also a gigantic piece of shit
0: where does your interest in i, I, I don't know and, and and maybe you can crack me on this i'm gonna say spanish culture come from i have no idea okay. I, <laughs> I tried to
2: i've tried to explain that or, well, talk about it before. And I, I don't know where. Like, I've, I've always been kind of interested in it anyway. And over, I don't know, somewhere in my like early 20s, I started um, becoming interested in it. And maybe it was, I really have no idea. Uh, a lot of it started with um, Garcia Marquez, I think, because I was really, really into him. Well, I'm still really into him. Um, but he was one of my really big influences in my early 20s. And then I just kind of fell down some rabbit hole. And um, especially over the last like six or seven years, I've read a lot of stuff about, you know, like uh, South American politics and Spanish politics and stuff like that. And it, it kind of goes along with learning the language and like learning the culture and whatnot. But I just find it really interesting. I'm not, I'm not sure what it is about it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I've I've always meant to ask you because I I see I see some commentary and then and then I see you you know really practicing your Spanish online on on social media and stuff at times and it's always interesting I was wondering like what but and you know what I think I think it's even cooler that you don't know. <laughs> I, you know if you would have said hey you know Virginia. yeah i look like it's you know like your basic white guy but my grandmother was 100 percent venezuelan or something like that and i'd be like oh well that's kind of cool but yeah i think that you know just taking an interest in something that you have no legitimate reason to um is probably more fascinating than than having a really solid uh, uh reason <laughs> to do it
2: my aunt is Ecuadorian, but outside of that, like, I have no
0: <laughs> Spanish
2: connection. All my family is, like, Northern European, so <laughs> Irish and Northern European. Though <laughs> so I told we, – when we were at uh, Noir at the Bar a couple weeks ago, somehow it was something, like, about, like, diversity within crime or, like, Hispanic voices or something. I was talking to uh, um, Angel Colon and uh, Chris Novas, and it was something like, well, you've got the Dominican thing and you've got the Puerto Rican thing. And Nick, you're kind of like the stand-in, the standing Colombian because speak better Spanish than the other
1: two of us do. Yeah. Yeah. So. Oh, that's funny. So Noir at the Bar, I'm going to use this as an awkward, um, segue. <laughs> okay. Because it's a reading. And I, I was, it, it, it's a special day, uh, not only because we're talking to you now, but, um, because Facebook told me so, um. Facebook told me that six years ago today, I posted a picture of you from uh, (laughs) Chicago in the Galway arms is the bar that we were at for a reading called the wrong kind of reading, uh, which you didn't read at, but you were there with our our group. And um, the picture is infamous. So you already know what I'm talking about. Um, uh, You're, Having spilled onto your pants in the crotch area something, a drinker, or maybe you peed on yourself, um, you were leaning against the fireplace uh, downstairs in the bar, uh, wearing jeans and also a jean jacket. So you were just denim head to toe uh, with a big wet stain on your crotch. Um, (laughs) Six years ago today, I posted that picture on Facebook. So it's a big special occasion. That's amazing that that was six years ago. I know. That's crazy. Um, and it's amazing you were wearing so much denim. I can't get over. But The thing that I'm thankful for is that at least once a year, I have an excuse to use the term Canadian tuxedo. <laughs> so like every March 1st, I can be like, oh, yeah, there's, there's Nick in his Canadian tuxedo.
2: Someone at the agency was talking about the Canadian tuxedos and somehow about them being fashionable or something. I can't remember exactly what it was. <laughs> I was like, you know, I've I've been wearing that since I was like nineteen. I don't, I, just,
0: I can't stop now. What I've been trying to figure out for six years is how this isn't your author photo. <laughs> it isn't. It's is, a good photo.
2: Yeah, it's kind of like uh, like Burt Reynolds in the middle of a seizure or something.
1: <laughs> There's a lot of confidence <laughs> in that photo. Like you really owned the whole situation.
2: And I was stone cold sober when I spilled that beer all over my pants too. It's just because I'm an idiot, not because I was drunk.
1: Sober, not very coordinated. Nope. Yeah. Nothing has changed. (laughs) Wardrobe or otherwise. (laughs) Except for now you have a beard, which is... um... Yeah. Yeah, very true. Yeah. While we're on readings, can, can I ask,
0: so East Coast Noir at the Bar readings are always like 30 authors. Or that's what it feels like. Every time I see something happening on the East Coast, there's those so like this last reading you're at, do you know how many readers there were? I think there were ten. Okay. Rob. Reaction to ten readers in one in one sitting. Jesus Christ, I would never do that. <laughs> but right? So Midwest <clears throat> you are at the bar? Midwest readings Hang on. three. I'm looking four? I've
1: got on my wall, I've got all of our posters from all the events. That one's four. One, two, three, four. There's five at that one. Uh one, two, three, four. Yeah, usually we, we average about four. Yeah, four and to five. The
2: Baltimore ones that I do have like six readers tops.
0: Yeah, <laughs>
1: come on. How
0: I do you that, sit through ten readers? Because I can't even imagine the people who are reading want to be there for ten readers. Well, I think that, I mean, the ones in DC at
2: Amar um, MCs, and he does a really, really good job of it because he's, he's, he's a really funny dude, and he has some way of like pulling readers along. Um And I guess it's just because everyone's, you know, hanging out and having beers and you know, just fucking off or whatever. So it's it goes by quicker. But I, I don't know. I just I can't do that when I host it. I only pick like six readers, and then it's done. Probably because it's on Sunday night usually, and I'm old, and I want to come home and go to
1: sleep. <laughs> Three in
0: the afternoon readings at a bar with Nick
1: Corpin. <laughs> I'll tell you what, though, I had this thought: if you've got 15 readers, that means you've got at least 14 people in the audience at all times. So, that is a very good point. Eh, they might be onto something.
0: Um, Rob and I have not attended a reading now in
1: a year and a, a half. Year. Yeah, it's over a year yeah, for sure. Yeah,
0: um, we're, we're probably due.
1: <sighs> yeah, sounds like a great idea. I would love to do <laughs> I'm
0: going to round up 15 <laughs> of the best readers in Chicago. I love the confidence of that sigh.
1: <laughs> I, you know what? I, I've realized recently, like, I've been listening to some of our older episodes, and, like, for me, a sigh is almost like a word. Like, I, I do it so often that it's like a word. <laughs> it's part of the conversation. I don't know if that's a—I can't say that necessarily. That's a good thing. But, um, yeah. I was going to say, it's... if our
0: podcast was subtitled, what would the subtitle be under you <laughs> sighing? Slow heavy metal music playing.
1: Uh, uh, background noise intensifies or something like that sigh <laughs> intensifies it would be in the in the <laughs> in the style of the twin peaks the new twin peaks season uh subtitles nick are you a twin peaks person
2: i am we watched the first series or like the original series on vhs tape that my wife had i haven't seen the wow. new ones though
0: Oh, how do you, how do you keep yourself from seeing the new ones? And I'm not trying to be funny. I just, I, I took in <laughs> Twin Peaks. Like I finished season two of Twin Peaks or the movie, I guess, probably, you know, I don't know, is it a week before the new season? And I was excited to see the new season.
2: Well, I think part of it, we don't even have Netflix um, because we just, we don't really have any time. And there are like two or three shows that we watch regularly. And then um, there are two shows that I watch at the gym when I'm running, but like outside of that, we don't, we just don't really have a lot of time to watch TV. All
0: right, so let's, I, it, let's play. Rob judges you. So you said three <laughs> shows you watch. I'm assuming with your wife, and then two you watch at the gym. So let's let's hear it.
2: Uh, the shows that we watch at home, she loves. Um, this is us, which I, is. Yeah which I find really interesting because when you watch it, you can see all the story architecture and you can see how they're manipulating you, but they never fail in manipulating you. <laughs> it's really well written. I'm, I
0: fucking hate that show. And I'm so fascinated by it at the same time. <laughs> People are always surprised when I say that I watch it and I enjoy it. I'm like, it's really well written. Like, I don't know what else to say about it. Like it's really well written. It's hard not to get into it. Yeah, it, it is. And it's, it draws you in. Um, what else did
2: we watch? We watch. Uh, she started watching that show Nashville. That I oh, just kind that of got felt...
1: Hayden Panettiere in it. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Save the cheerleader, save the world. Oh yeah. And it's pretty much like a. It's like a telenovela, but in country music. So I mean, I I like telenovelas. <laughs> God damn it! If my, if
0: my Spanish was better, I would probably love telenovelas too. You, they have English sub- subtitles too. So. <laughs> oh, Olivious. Like like K dramas, like K dramas weren't enough. Now now I have to add Telenovelas to the list. Oh yeah, yeah, same thing. Same thing, different culture. All,
1: all right, the drama. I, I can't judge either of those because I haven't watched watched him. Although I, I won't watch This Is Us because someone told me like you just cry all the time, and like I cry easy enough as it is, so I don't need any encouragement oh. for my shows. I.
2: Definitely, I don't cry, but I definitely uh, my eyes sweat a lot, especially when it's like father son stuff. <laughs> um, what's the other one? Ooh, Brooklyn Nine Nine, which is a great show. Um, and I guess the other we watched. What the fuck is it? Chip, Chip and JoJo. What's that HGTV what show?
1: F- what the fuck is that? <laughs> it's uh, it's what. Uh, I'm not getting anything I was expecting out of you, so. It's uh, it's one of the
2: HGTV shows, the the house people. I can never oh. remember.
0: What the, um, do they do they flip houses or are they fixer like remodelers? Okay, fixer-upper. Gotcha.
2: And I could never remember what their name is, so I would just start saying Chip, Chip and Jojo, because that's how Baltimore people talk, and uh, somehow that became the name of the show to us. But it's a it's a great mindless show. All right. I'm totally giving away all my secrets. <laughs> all right. This is going to so, be the most so.
1: embarrassing interview you've ever done. <laughs> what are what are
2: what are, what are the gym what are the gym shows? Um, there's one called uh, Escobar, El Patron de Mal, which is um, it's it's the, the Pablo Escobar story essentially, but it's told it's it's got a fascinating backstory. Um, it's told over four seasons, and the I think the head writer and the executive producer like the executive producer or the showrunner or whatever it is, their father was a journalist for, um, El Espectador, which is the, like the big, um, big newspaper in Colombia, And he was murdered by Escobar's cartel. Ooh. And the, um, the head writer, his, his father or mother or something, they were somehow murdered by the Escobar to cartel. I can't remember how it came about. Um, But it's a very, um, it follows a lot along the same lines of Narcos, obviously, but it's, um, it focuses a lot on Escobar and like the, like the duality of his personality, I guess. Um, and it's, it's a fascinating show. Um, and I watch, um, Metastasis, which is, uh, the Colombian Breaking Bad. It's like literally shot for shot Breaking Bad, but it's in Colombia instead of Arizona. (laughs)
0: Which is great, because I didn't know
2: what happened, so I just followed
0: along. The thing that struck me most about Narcos, Rob, did you watch Narcos? Nope. Okay. Um, How much, and I'm I'm sure it was meant to be this way, but how much I sided with and liked Pablo Escobar. Not something I expected to happen. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I know that he was the biggest drug dealer ever and, and that kind of stuff. I didn't know anything about him personally, but he's just very endearing, at least in that TV show well he he really
2: isn't I think that's what at least what they get in um with uh El mo it's a uh, you know he's a really engaging charismatic type person, and when he's with his wife when he's in the right mood, you know he's a very sweet guy and very doting and stuff, and like he breaks down when he finally is reunited with her, like in front of all his cartel buddies who kind of look around awkwardly but at the same time he's got like four or five different mistresses and he just you know like shoots people randomly cuz they don't do what he says and all this kind of stuff so the the um the personality landscape of him is is fascinating.
1: Wow. Yep. Um so when we started this conversation about the the TV shows that Nick watches I know you're from Baltimore so I just assumed you guys just watch like The Wire all the time. Because that's like <laughs> that's like your one like tent pole show for your city, right? Is there anything else that's like this is this is straight Baltimore? Uh The Wire and Homicide. Oh. Homicide, homicide
2: was uh the NBC one before with Andre Brower, um before uh The Wire. And the corner too was in
1: Baltimore. It's another David David Simon one. So really you got the wire is what we're yeah, pretty much.
0: <laughs> well, Rob, what do we have? We have, like, like Chicago Fire and, like, Chicago PD or whatever the other one's called, right?
1: Dude, we had ER back in the day. That was a Chicago show, right?
0: Oh, I don't know. I've never seen it. Yeah. I know what it is, but I, I wasn't. I, I guess I wasn't aware that was in Chicago.
1: Yeah. I don't know. I feel like there's probably something very obvious that I'm not thinking about, but um, I'll, I'm going to hang it on ER. So I guess we're no better than Baltimore. <laughs> not that that's I, was, what I was not that at. i was <laughs> not that i was thinking they, that originally they at least had the wire that's true yeah omar we have no omar
2: there can only be one omar i know
1: well that backfired
2: <laughs> you've got high
1: fidelity oh and movies we got movies in spades So I guess this is a little bit more of a conventional interview question, but, um, what's, uh, what's on the horizon for, for Nick, what are we going to read from you next or, or whatever?
2: Uh, shit. Um, so, well, Queen of the Struggle comes out next week. Um, man, I don't know what, I don't know what I have coming up. Um, I've got a story in, of all things, a Joni Mitchell anthology um like there was that uh that Johnny Cash anthology that came out last year that I had a story in and there was um, a yeah. Bruce Springsteen one before that and they're um they're doing a Joni Mitchell one and I got invited to it which is strange cuz I I never listened to Joni Mitchell <laughs> but they had a, she had a couple of good um song titles so I figured why not um so I think that's coming out next year I believe and I'll have a story and I don't know what the anthology name is. Um, I got invited to a um, a convention in Columbus called Origins Convention. They've got I think like ten or fifteen writers or something. It's a like a like a gaming game board, a board game kind of convention, or like mm-hmm. card game type thing. And they have this thing called the, uh, the library at Origins where. There are fifteen different uh, sci-fi authors coming in and like giving workshops and doing panels and you know, selling books and stuff like that. And they have an anthology every year. So I'm gonna write a a story that's connected to the, the memory thief world. And there will be a story in that. I'll take that. I don't think I have anything in the hopper at the moment. I've been trying to finish up I've been trying to finish promotion for um Burke queen of the struggle and then finish up another book that I'm working on to get that back to my agent. So I can then rewrite another book that uh, we've got some notes on that we can improve.
0: Kind of fascinated at, at that peak behind the curtain you just gave us. I'm in a Joni Mitchell anthology. <laughs> I'm not really in a Joni Mitchell. Cause you know, my thought is <laughs> if I, if I saw and, and I was aware of like the Johnny cash one, I had, you know, in, in the back, I didn't give it much thought, but you know, When you said that, I was like, yeah, those people have to be some pretty hardcore fans to, like, you know, contribute and write a story and then, like, get accepted. And and really, what you're saying is not so much.
2: (laughs) Well, some of them. So I, I was in the Johnny Cash one because Joe Clifford edited that one and he edited the Springsteen one. And I don't remember exactly how it came about, but he was he had asked me. Either we were talking, and like he asked me to introduce him to someone because I was friends with them, and he he was a really big fan, or I was just giving him a whole raft of shit because I wasn't invited to the um, the Springsteen anthology, and I had just dressed up as Bruce Springsteen for uh, Halloween with an inflatable guitar and all. <laughs> <laughs> so somehow, somehow,
1: like it came up and, and um, really
0: that was just that standard jeans and jean jacket i think right <laughs> I mean, <it's... laughs>
1: yeah you really didn't have to change your outfit
0: i think all i did was rip the sleeves off
2: my white
1: t-shirt and
2: I, <laughs> and I borrowed my my wife's red headband or uh, bandana rather <laughs> wow. um but yeah so he was, he said something and he's like I'm, I'm so sorry so many people are angry because everyone loves bruce springsteen you know, there are only so so many spaces. So when the when the Johnny Cash thing came out, he uh, he emailed me to see if I wanted to do it. And um, Jen Conley stole my my song name, which was uh, uh, "God's Gonna Cut You Down," because mm. it's such a fantastic name. Um, but since she stole it, then I took, uh, Rose of My Heart, which is actually the song that my wife and I danced to for our first song or for our first, um, our first dance during our wedding. Our buddy Eddie, uh, played guitar and sang it for us.
1: <laughs>
0: Hold on now, a second. now
1: I'm crying. Like I'm watching TV.
0: Did you, did you, did you tell your wife that song? Was it your first choice? Yeah. she did <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Because I'm, I'm picturing that you're explaining this to her, and she's just getting angrier and angrier, waiting for you to finish so she could be like, "What do you mean that wasn't your first choice?" And then the <laughs> the story is about a woman wrong, a woman who is wronged,
2: tracking down the uh, the man who wronged her. And <laughs> that only makes it so It just gets better and better. It's it. <laughs> like living vicariously for her. <laughs> I think if she hasn't murdered me after ten years, I'm pretty okay.
1: Fingers crossed on that one. <laughs> hey, can we? Can I ask a question? Sure. Cause like when we're, we 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 had this nice walk down memory lane, we're talking about you wearing a Canadian tuxedo, <laughs> and like my impression of you, like, and we may have talked about this back when we did Soul Standard, but I don't have the fucking memory to go back that far. Um, you've always been sci-fi. I mean, uh, uh crime, crime for me, like up to, way... You're right. But I guess you did. I, now I'm like second guessing myself because you did like Nails of the War Priest, which is definitely, you know, not a crime story. Right. So I'm just the genres. I, I always think of you as crime, but like you've got all this solid stuff that's outside of crime. So where what's what's going on there?
2: No, no, I think you're right. And I think I, I wrote a couple essays about it uh, for uh, when Rebellions of Australia came out. Because I've never, I've never, I've always thought of myself as a crime writer. You know, I could go to Beltricon and Noorcon. Yeah, yeah. I never really yeah. felt like I fit in at AWP because you know all the people we hung out with were crime stuff. Um, and I guess like I dabbled outside of it. I had some, I don't know what they're called, like slipstream or something, some weirder stories. And uh, Warpriest was was kind of like, I guess it was like a dystopian world, but it was still. It was still kind of like a crime story in my mind, mm. um, and a, a lot of it was at the the suggestion of my agent because I sent her, uh, I forget what it was called at that point. It was an early draft of um Rebellion's Last Trader*. She's like, "Yeah, this is really good, but like no one buys dystopian stuff anymore, and it's it's really hard to sell." Have you, it, I think it would work better as a, a sci-fi story anyway, you and you know can you make it sci-fi? And I was like, Oh yeah, sure. Totally. No problem.
0: And I had like no sci-fi reference whatsoever. <laughs> like, and, and then Henrik Pelt picked up a laser gun and there you go. That's you know, yeah. That's well, that's, like,
2: that's, that's, so I asked, uh, you know, our, our friends of the podcast, um, Axel Tayari for references cause he's really, really well read and sci-fi and like, I don't know anything. So I asked him and read a bunch of books that he suggested and, my whole my whole thing was like, well, I can just like put self driving cars and holograms in it, <laughs> and now self driving cars are normal and like fucking hologram Tupac plays a coach. So apparently, there was sci-fi writer.
1: <laughs> we got fucking Isaac Asimov on the podcast today. <laughs> yeah, <seriously. laughs>
2: but yeah, I I became a sci-fi writer because of that. That's great. I hey, I grew up watching like you know I watched X Files every Friday night and. You know, watch Star Wars all the time and stuff like that. I've always, I've always loved stuff like that, like you know, Twilight Zone and Black Mirror. But I just never, I never wrote it. And then I just, it was weird when when she suggested it, it was kind of like something, sort of like opened up in my head. You know, like there are all these different avenues that you can take stories, and it doesn't have to be so so grounded in reality like a lot of crime stories are. Mm, yeah. Um, so it was just a a different way to come at things or like a different take to have, I guess.
0: Great. So now that you're an established sci-fi writer, and <laughs> I, I well, no. And I meant to mention this, um, during our review Rob had said something and I just never circled back around to it sci-fi and fantasy get lumped in together a lot but it occurred to me that there are like distinct differences so I'll kind of give you what what I see on, on on those right so sci-fi could be anything from um, the rebellions last trader queen of the struggle which is a little more grounded in our reality I think mm-hmm. like we can totally relate to what those people are going through and then there's like some tech maybe that's a little different. And then you have like the sci-fi that's like weird, um, other planet, different um, species, you know, think Star Wars, right? So you've got a million different species and stuff. But fantasy, to me, really is like, um, you know, orcs and um, guys with, you know, broadswords and, you know, that kind of thing. And I guess I don't understand why those two categories get lumped in together so often and so closely. Cause to me, they're two very distinctively different things. So I guess what I'm saying is as a sci-fi writer, any particular thoughts on, on that kind of grouping?
2: I think it's probably like the ghettoization of genre and it's, um, it stems from, I would guess stuff from, you know, like years and years ago. Uh, like 50 60 80 years ago however long it was um because you're right like there's so even though all right so like my books and I don't know George martin or george R, R. martin or something would technically be within the same section at Barnes and noble but there is nothing in common with them you know um so i, I don't I don't know why they're why they're still lumped together there's such a an an amazing variety of even like within looking at sci-fi itself between like uh soft and hard sci-fi and then there's like space opera type stuff which is like um, star wars more Mm -hmm. i guess like grander stories or whatnot um there's such a huge variety of it that i guess i don't know if it really exists in other types of um genres like uh you know like crime stories tend to follow a lot of the same patterns I guess and you know mystery kind of has the same sort of it's all within the same ballpark I guess Um, but I I don't know why they're all lumped together
1: see and I was thinking when you said Star Wars I was ready to challenge that because Star Wars could easily be classified as fantasy if you look at it from the like the you know I guess the variety of different like species of animal and the fact that they essentially use magic yeah, yeah, basically. But at the same time, it's in space and there's, you know, like technology and, and stuff like that, too. So, like, the lightsabers and stuff. So, like, that, I think, could be easily claimed by both both genres.
2: Yeah, and I think I think stuff like that is, you know, it's amazing. And I wish that I had the kind of imagination for that. I think the reason that I write the kind of <laughs> sci-fi that I write is because I, I just, I I can't, my brain just
0: doesn't work that way, you know? Yeah, yeah. It takes it takes world building like to a whole different level.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I I like taking kind of like a found world and then you know like turning it three notches to the I
0: don't know, whatever. For me, that makes it a lot more relatable. And you know, I kid about not liking um sci-fi a whole (laughs) lot on the podcast. Wait, you're joking when you. (laughs) Well, no, but I, I think, you know, like hard sci-fi is, is not for me. And I'm not saying that I couldn't, you know, we couldn't review a book where I go, man, this was actually really well written and the story was engaging and I liked it. Um, the difference there, and this isn't, you know, kissing Nick's ass because he's on the podcast, but it was very relatable. Yeah. You know, outside of, so we'll, we'll take a step back, The Rebellion's Last Trader, the only thing that stood out for me there that was not... Uh, You know, something that that potentially could happen to me in my lifetime was was maybe like the memory thieving. Like, that's the part that that was fantastical. Other than that, you know, living under oppression and that kind of thing, that's all very relatable. The characters were relatable, even if their names were unpronounceable. (laughs) You know what I mean? So it wasn't I wasn't picturing, (laughs) you know, this thing looks kind of like. A sheep, but it walks on two legs, and and you know has a laser in one arm, right? Like that's a lot harder for me to wrap my head around. It's far less relatable to me than than the sci the type of science fiction that you're writing. Yeah, I well,
2: and I think you can you can do lots of cool stuff with that. And the people who have that kind of imagination, I would do but... lots of
0: cool stuff with a sheep that walked on two <laughs> legs. Absolutely,
1: <laughs> there's oh, so many different ways to go. With we're tagging that at the beginning of the episode. <laughs>
2: Um, oh shit now I forgot what I was going to say <laughs> good job Livia. Um oh yeah so I mean you know like two legged sheeps with laser arms are super cool um, but they're I think for me at least they kind of distract from the story because um, a lot of that stuff is sort of like set dressing or like world building or whatever for me but what I'm What what I'm always interested in, whether it's, you know, crime, mystery, sci-fi, whatever, is the the relationships between people and the way that they interact, what they, you know, what they keep from each other, what they reveal, um, what they think of themselves versus what they actually are and all that kind of stuff.
0: All right. It's like a uh,
1: standoff. I was waiting the, for Olivius to make noise. Yep. I'm <laughs> making noise.
0: Um two legged sheep with lasers is it.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's book three. So I one thing I just thought of, uh if if anybody wants to kind of dig into a conversation we had specifically about sci fi, I believe when we had Axel Tari for our Soul Standard interviews, um I, if I remember correctly, Livius, you dropped kind of a challenge like about explain why sci-fi doesn't suck or something like that you challenged <laughs> him on possible. it and he had but what i'm trying to say is um and, and nick brought him up before as being like a sci-fi expert like I, I feel like when we did that interview if i remember correctly he had a really well thought out kind of um explanation of like the benefits of sci-fi so um mm-hmm. if anybody wants to go back and listen to that it was about a year, it was like July of 2016. You can scroll back to our one of our episodes and check that out. And if I'm completely making that up in my mind, let me know so I don't keep advertising that to people.
2: <laughs> well, and I think – so I, I, I can't remember what Axel said because I can barely remember two weeks ago, much less three years ago. <laughs> um, but knowing Axel, I'm sure it was really incredibly insightful and very smart. Um, but I think what I would say is that I think like – when you have like the great American novel or whatever, I think the great American novels are crime novels because crime novels can address things, you know, like sociological differences and race relations, you know, all kinds of different stuff that happens in America, but within a, um, uh, propulsive narrative. And I think that sci-fi does a great job of being like the stand in for the great human novel, I guess, and for the way that, you know, for humans act, for human nature, um, dealing with like, I don't know, destiny versus free will. And, you know, like the nature of consciousness and being and stuff like that in a way that maybe something like a murder mystery can't really address. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, that's awesome. That's a really good thought. I like it. May as well drop the mic on that, huh? <laughs>
0: Nick, thanks a lot for joining us again. Let's not make it uh, two years next time. Um, you are always welcome as a longtime friend of the podcast. Thank you so much. I'd love to come back again. All right. Nick's newest book, Queen of the Struggle, is available now from Amazon.com. Um, but uh, go back and read The Rebellion's Last Trader in case you haven't. You can also pick that up there. And if you're interested in what that's about, uh, just search on the book podcast website for our review. Rob, do you got anything else for tonight?
1: No, I think that's it. Um, We're kind of unsure what our next episode is, right? We are unsure, and we're going to figure that out moments from now, I think. That's right. So that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Once again, it was awesome to have Nick on. And um, until next time, I'm Rob Olson.
0: And I'm Livia Nedden. Keep reading.